Hey, what's up? I'm Ian. And I'm James. This is Two Player. A podcast about the importance of play in a complicated world. Today we are continuing our discussion on the book Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World, a book with a bold thesis that I I wonder how convinced uh, we are about. We'll get into that in the second half of the podcast, but before we get there, James, I am not going to ask you what you've been playing over the last two weeks because I feel like I know the answer I'm just going to ask if there's anything new that you have played over the last two weeks. Well, I got to role play as Hacker Man, or at least that's what it sort of felt like as I tackled the PC issues I was mentioning on the last show about how I was just, my box was just mysteriously crashing and with no blue screen, no error message or anything. But, uh, with trusty Google, I was able to gradually figure out where I should be looking for error codes and to try to figure out what was going on. And it turns out that I was experiencing live kernel event 144, uh, okay. which is apparently, well, at first, the first forum threads I found suggested that it might be a video card issue or a display driver issue that was not the case it's actually a usb3 thing happening with your motherboard so i flashed my bias with your motherboard yes with my motherboard and uh yeah i fixed it and it i felt like a superhero after fixing it so you did have to cheat by looking on the wiki oh no definitely yeah i'm just saying yeah i am i definitely had a walkthrough open the whole time um, right, <laughs> and so did I play anything new besides IT Hacker Man? Um, I downloaded some things and installed some things. Um, firstly, I got super hyped by the announcement trailer for the Outer Worlds. Did you see that announcement trailer? Yeah. Um... I started to, so this is the Obsidian team, right? That's right. Okay, take me through it, because I I saw very little of it, but I definitely saw the uh, reaction, I guess, to it. Yeah, so the first thing, like, my first impressions were very much in line with everyone else's. It was sort of like, oh, wow, this looks like Borderlands meets Fallout New Vegas, and with a sprinkling of Bioshock and uh, it like the levity was there in the tone like it was funny but also serious and it was sci-fi and it looked like there were real discussion trees happening um, where maybe choices matter and there were skill checks and it looked real good and it incentivized me to actually reinstall Fallout New Vegas which oh, I, wow. Because I only have like 10 hours in it because I didn't get into it my first time around for whatever reason, even though I was a huge Fallout 3 fan. So, Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, oh, you're going to have the time of your life. Yeah. I'm, I'm, that game is, I'm really stoked. 
It's really good. Yeah, and I, I know that, and I have a lot of friends who've really enjoyed it, and everyone talks about how it's the best one of the series, if not one of the greatest games people have ever played. So for whatever reason, my first time around with it, I it didn't sink it didn't sink in with me even though yeah i really enjoyed fallout 3 so i'm gonna give that a go after i finally finish up the game that shall not be named um i also right. in the famous game that shall not be named yeah um the other the other greatest game that people have ever played um groundbreaking western rpg um i downloaded uh company of heroes 2 was free or something so i downloaded that this is like the five-year anniversary. Um, even though I'm terrible at real-time strategy games, I'm excited to give it a go uh, because apparently I'm super cheap. I downloaded the the free prologue to Hitman 2. And right. apparently it allows you to... Because I, I have um, I don't want to call it Hitman 1 because it's not Hitman 1, but I'm going to refer to it as Hitman 1 and everyone will understand what I'm talking about. Um, Because I have the previous installation, which I thought was great. Um, And apparently, if you get Hitman 2, you can replay Hitman 1 with new mechanics that are in Hitman 2. Like the flying briefcase? Yeah, like the infamous flying, floating slow moving Austin Powers the infamous type. excellent ubiquitous flying briefcase yeah, <laughs> yeah it definitely chases people right I really liked that I, I don't know was that a glitch is that a real thing I, I don't it's know. gotta be a glitch I've seen it like go around a corner and chase a person and hit them. <laughs> I mean yeah so no briefcase I know does that so yeah I I installed a bunch of stuff and have only played the same old things um, and fixed my computer, which made me very, very happy. It's good. You're but back yeah, in the game. Yeah, back in the game, literally, figuratively. Right. What about you, Ian? What, what was on your docket? So I got into uh, Hearts of Iron. Oh, we t- yeah, yeah. We talked, to, we talked about it last time and just yep. how, how complicated it is. It is. It is crazy complicated. It is a you said you said World War II logistics simulator. Yeah, last time. that was my and yeah, like I I kind of reevaluate. My initial thought was no, it's 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 bigger than that, and it is bigger than that. But but it is if you were gonna if you were gonna put a label on it, it is a logistics simulator, and you the just the amount of planning ahead that you have to do um, is is really intense. The amount of things that you have to be doing at the same time is is staggering, you know? And um, I went and I played, I probably played seven or eight campaigns. Uh, I played a few, most with Germany, not because I wanted to play as Hitler or rewrite history or anything like that, but because uh, the the thought process has been so well documented and, and, and that history is told so much that I was able to sort of draw on my very rudimentary understanding of what happened in World War II with the battle and battles and, and, and Hitler's sort of like step-by-step approach and follow that. And it kind of worked for a bit until, until I 
uh, actually ran into the same problems that Germany ran into in the World War, which is, you know, you conquer up until France and then you conquer up to Russia and then crossing the English Channel and fighting Russia just become overwhelming over time. Um, anyway, I, it gave me a lot to think about. I never got to a point where I felt particularly confident playing the game, even on the easiest easiest challenge. I go online and I, you know, every everybody on uh, online is saying how difficult it is. It seems like, you know, I I've, I've been playing this game for 100 hours and I still find it difficult. And then the Reddit thread under that is like 100 hours is nothing in this game. <laughs> like you yeah, of course you're still terrible at it cuz cuz you are still a baby when it comes to uh planning and and things like that. Is it super uh, micromanagey? It's it's no, it's I wouldn't say it is super mi- super micromanagey, but it's it's super macro managey. Uh, okay, gotcha. It's it, you you just have to be you have to be putting work into a lot of different buckets at the same time. So you're you know, you're you're creating a, a navy and an air force and an army, right? And and the production lines are separate for all three and the way that all three of those things um fight is different as well um and then you're you're creating a political climate in your country uh which manages how popular you are and how how many decisions you can make and how quickly you can make those decisions okay uh it manages how much manpower you have like how you know if you've called conscription or to what level you've called your conscription you also have sort of a, a country doctrine that you're researching one at a time which is um almost like a separate research tree um in that like you know if you're if you're germany for example you enact uh, a four-year plan which is essentially a not necessarily a militarization strategy but it's a infrastructure building strategy and then you do that and then you you know do the rhineland and take austria and take the czech republic and then eventually invade poland and, and do that thing and there is a whole actual research tree right where you need to be investing into to get the newest technologies and then there's i know it's, it's just like more and more and more and more uh and then there is a whole economic aspect to it as well which is uh at the beginning of the game you can pretty safely trade for oil and rubber and tungsten and steel and aluminum i don't know if i'm forgetting any resources those are the big ones um but obviously, as the war starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, your trade routes get compromised. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you, so you have to find a way to, to be managing the economic side of things as well. Um, anyway, all that to say that it's a fascinating game. It is, it's, it's slow and then incredibly fast, right? So it's, it's slow. You're like, oh my God, I need to build all these factories. And that seems to take forever, even though you've sped the whole thing up as fast as you can. And then when the war sort of kicks in, um, you know, if you're on that fast setting and you forget something, you might just see some, like a country like Switzerland um, just take over your whole German empire, right? Um, so you got to keep your eye on it. And um, yeah, anyway, that's the one I've been playing. And that's it. Really, I played a little bit more of Universum, which is mm-hmm. this. Uh, I don't know what it is. Really, <laughs> you're you have a planet and you're creating a colony, a little 
a little dudes. It's not an original idea, but um, I have a feeling the end game is a little bit different. It sort of reminds me of Spore. Okay. Uh, but like more human-ish than Spore, I guess. I remember Spore was so hyped. Like, do you remember when they had Robin Williams do a promo? Nope. Like they had him. I don't know if he was playing the game or he was, or he was watching someone play the game and describing what was happening in the Monster Creator, and it was so great. And then Spore came out, and it was such a letdown. The beginning, the beginning of Spore, was fun, right? Like the until you get to creating your creature or whatever, um. And have it sort of walk on land for the first time, and I thought that was interesting. But then, as soon as, as soon as you're then supposed to turn it into the society, and then planet to planet and stuff, it just it got a little too big for its britches. And if that is even the expression, I know it's an expression. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's how I felt about it. Was that a Peter Molyneux game? Like, um, like the same the guy that did Fable in black and white, like. Or am I? Am I thought I, it was Maxis. Yeah, I thought so. Like, I don't remember. Let's. You want to look it up? Yeah, I'm gonna look it up right quick. I'm gonna look up Peter Molyneux because Spore, Peter. Ah, the genres are God Game, Life Simulation, Real Time Strategy. I guess. I guess The Sims is kind of a God Game, right? No, I like. Uh, in a way, I, it, it's like it's very I, I, focused on this very small scale. Yeah, so it's Maxis. Who actually made it? Um, dude. So yeah, why is it hyped? Uh, one of the composers is Brian Eno. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, it was pretty hyped. Fun. Yeah, you know what? For, uh, yeah, for he. Peter Molyneux had nothing to do with Spore. I'm getting a bunch of things conflated here. So I forget I said good. that. All right. Good. Good. Um, so what do you think? Spore? Huga? Not Huga? Ooh. ooh. I think that it, if we forget about the disappointment that came with it, like some people got really into Spore. Like there was even, even just like the monster creator. That was fun. That was cool. That was well done. Um, I'm going to say, yeah, for people, for, for people who have no chill, no, not Huga, but, uh, I'm going to align myself with the yes, Spore Huga camp. It's also bright, you know, it's kind of cartoony, kind of easy to look at. Okay. I think I've, I think I thought of the most Huga game. Huga, by the way, for those of you who... I haven't listened to last week's or two the episode two weeks ago, Huga Not Huga. Huga is this Danish concept of wintertime coziness. It's like uh, behaviors that will let you hibernate well for the wintertime. So things that are cozy, think like nice smelling candles and mulled wine and a cat sitting in your lap and a fireplace and a onesie. And I am wearing a onesie right now and it's incredible and it's brought to you by our sponsor just kidding uh um so the most huga game ever roller coaster tycoon 
Yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, and that sort of genre of game, the building, the park building or city building genre, but it's specifically, yeah, Roller Coaster Tycoon, I'm, I'm on board with you for that. I mean, it's definitely my kind of game, right? But yeah. So were you a park optimizer or did you create little hellscapes to torture <laughs> no, I was no, no. I wanted my park build right. Okay, I I am like uh you know people people pleaser for like in, through and through. I will never do something that I think will upset someone, even if it's in a game. That's that's really funny. I know, right? Like we've we've been over this, right? When it when it comes to like a, a karma uh, mechanic in a game, you say, oh well, I get to. Do the do the craziest things in the game, and I'm prevented from doing those in real life. So why not take this opportunity to explore those? Me, I'm like, I'm gonna be the best person I can be <laughs> in this game. Maybe it's the same. Maybe I'm just a bad person, and so my fantasy is to be a really good person in the video game world. Or maybe I was raised with so much guilt that that's yeah. the only option that's reasonable for me. <laughs> I th- yeah, to to somehow rectify all the ill that we put into the world, we be hyper virtuous paragons in our with our gaming avatars. That's right. I will go get filtered bottled water for that guy sitting outside of Rivet City. What does it accomplish? No one knows. Did you get that reference? I did, yes. Yes, okay, yeah. good. I did at least get get that far. I can understand River City. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, do you wanna do you wanna take us through uh Wonderland here? Yeah. I admitted to James earlier that this week le- leading up into the, the holiday season is I shouldn't say I'm busy and so I didn't do the thing, because that's awful. But <laughs> But um, I didn't read the book. So, James, you got to take us through what you discovered about Wonderland, okay? We're switching. We're going to switch roles here because, yeah, usually it's the other way around where Ian does the actual reading and I just kind of get dragged along. So, (laughs) I'm going to try to drag both myself and Ian through this conversation. Um, So, last time we decided that we wanted to look at the illusions chapter uh in wonderland because the book also discusses uh music before this and super interesting chapter we decided now what what did we talk about last time we talked about the shopping and fashion yeah we talked about shopping and fashion okay so we're just going to skip right ahead to illusions um and the the way that people are drawn to visual media, essentially, and the advent of tricking our brains into th- interpreting visual stimuli in a way that is, yeah, magical, really. It's, it talks about optical illusions, talks about the phantasmagoria so basically basically these chambers that were created by um by people who were skirting the line between being an entertainer 
but also like actually sincerely believing in the occult. So they'd have these seance type activities, but they would fake the ghosts at, with um, projection, like rudimentary projection techniques and by and projecting onto either scrims or onto actual smoke with, for really cool effect by mildly um, not electrocuting the audience, but using static electricity machines so that people would literally feel the electricity in the air. So they were creating these really visceral experiences. But this one fellow, I didn't write his name down, but he was at the forefront of this. But he actually thought that by simulating these otherworldly experiences, that it was actually bringing him closer to really being able to communicate to the other side. To the yeah, I found his name. It's Sh- it's Schroepfer. Yeah. Schroepfer. <laughs> S-C-H-R-O with the two dots, P-F-E-R. And to the point that he got a bunch of friends together one night and they went out on the town to have a good time. And he said, I'm going to show you fellows something tonight that you're never going to forget. And while they're walking through the park, he rushes ahead, turns around the corner. They hear a loud bang. <laughs> they catch up to him and he shot himself in the head because he sincerely believed that he would be able to talk to them later at a seance using the same technology that he'd been simulating seances with up until this no point. No way. Yeah, so it was it was this weird case of something someone constructing something illusory but buying into it in this weird way that they like they had drunk the own, I mean, their own Kool-Aid. It was really really fascinating. There's so there's got to be this connection to to Baudrillard, right? Like he's saying, and the hyperreal, definitely, and the hyperreal, yeah. right? And so he's he's experiencing this illusion that he's making as a real thing, and and buying into the perception is reality. Um, but it ends as soon as he sh- he shoots himself in the head. This is this paragraph you're describing is amazing. It's. Um, so in, in 1774, he went for a stroll in Leipzig Park with a handful of friends, promising promising them something you have never seen before, in quotation marks. At one point in their sojourn, he walked around a corner outside of the view of his companions who were startled by a loud explosion. They caught up with their friend and they discovered him bleeding to death on the ground, the victim of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Unbelievable. So he's, I mean... That's where the that's where the hyper real ends, though, right? I mean, we we did all this philosophizing about the real and and what's the difference if people are experiencing these emotions. But oh, maybe he killed himself inside the matrix. No, 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 <laughs> no. Well, that's see, it. See, this is the the really crazy thing is the fact that like he was the guy making the illusions like this wasn't someone who had bought in who had seen it from the outside and thought oh man this is legit i can't wait to show up in one of these events as one of the ghosts like it was yeah. it was the guy making the ghosts with projectors he was the one he was the he was the literal man behind the curtain what a what a crazy idea. Yeah. And it's like writing a novel and then inventing a character 
And then, and then, you know, somebody's asking you about your novel and like, oh, well, what do you think about Dante's character? And then you start talking about Dante as if he's a real person, but then going home and actually being convinced that the character that you've written is a real person. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on this because this is just one okay, w- sorry. one of the anecdotes, but it I it it clearly left left an impact on me. So it goes from these these sort of phantasmagoria things, then talks about the advent of uh, the panorama, and which actually started as these hand drawn sketches that were that they ended up making these six story buildings in London that were round on the inside and they was just a hand painted panorama of a scene and people would pay money to go into this room just to be surrounded by a 360 degree view of Which something is painting yeah and but it, it there was also like technical expertise behind this because he found again he this nameless gentleman who <laughs> whose name I did not write down he realized that if like he had to 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 preserve the illusion that you're actually seeing this in 3D he had to artificially like make make what would be straight lines represented as curved lines so that when you curve them on an actual wall that it skipped over the uncanny valley and that it still seemed like uh, like a fair yeah. representation and then from these sorts of illusions then we start looking at animation and um, that breaking point of 12 frames per second where when you're looking at still images at a rate slower than 12 frames per second you see them as distinctly unique individual still images that you're just cycling through but as soon as you hit that 12 frames per second barrier your mind starts to interpret interpolate that as actual movement um and we talk and goes on to talk about disney and all the technical advances um and the giving animations weight or physics actually and starting to look at really mimicking life and then and then from there, you're just sort of jumping into full-fledged video and mass media. Yeah, and sort of jumps into Disney, right? Yeah. And which, yeah. And then just to how we start consuming media and what the really prevalent forms of consumption are. And yeah, video is it. And this was probably is probably the most compelling, like causal line that's drawn in the book at this point in terms of something from a a purely novel, like a a purely novel, whimsical, enjoyable thing that was um, that started off as this idea of illusion and tricking the eye and tricking the mind into seeing something um, that doesn't as exist. As you can exactly. make it. Yeah. And then all the way up to video and mass media and looking at how and how that has shaped our world and the idea of celebrity, um, which is 
that's a newer invention. Like there are always people who are famous, but fame means something very different now. And the influence is tied to that. And you just look at the political landscape in North America yeah. or the rest of the world right now to see that, yeah, this, this one lineage, I, this is the best support he has so far for his um, initial thesis of the way play is shaping, has shaped the world. And it definitely, you start getting into this, you nailed it. It goes back to the, the hyperreal discussion we had a few episodes ago where you start making things seem so real. Well, and even the advent of like fake news or propaganda, <laughs> I guess, if you want to call it. And to the point where we're getting into deep fakes and using neural networks to generate video which is already an illusion but making like making it out of thin air um and even oh there is that one recently um the what's it nvidia yeah nvidia just released a video um they used a neural network and just kept feeding it uh footage of cityscapes filmed from a car yeah and like all like like first person in a car view of driving through cities and taught the neural network this is what driving through a city looks like and the neural network spat out a video of driving through a city but it's completely fabricated like it's not a real city come like, on if you haven't seen this ian you really need to to check it out because it's it's horrifying but really strangely beautiful and fascinating at the same time because it's it's unmistakably like a, a video of driving through a busy downtown core but it's a machine's interpretation of what's that what that's supposed to look like so I think we should just take a quick break for you. Yeah, let's just take a quick break, and I'm going to find this, and then and then we can talk about that for a second because yeah. I'm sure that that's going to need some unpacking. All right, we'll be right, right back. We'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's actually even more insane than I remembered or that I that's mentioned. Ins- that is absolutely bonkers yeah ian will tweet out a link to that video um so if you haven't seen it yet and this is the first you're hearing of it you can go check it out um because yeah like i mentioned that it was just a video but no i it's actually an interactive it's, it's an interactive world being rendered by it's being rendered in real time with an, uh, the UE4 engine. Um, I guess it gets mapped. It gets mapped originally, and it puts different objects into different colors, and then it secondarily maps images onto those 3D colored models. As the camera or the car is moving through the map that it's rendering in real time. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> that is absolutely crazy um and then uh, the movie that i watched it's called research at nvidia the first interactive ai rendering something yep yep is that yeah yeah that's the one so 
at the end of this video, it's, uh, they're like, so what else can it do? Right. Sort of like trying to peek behind the curtain and see, see what might be in store. And he says, well, I got my co-author to dance the Gagnum style dance, something I don't think he would, he would normally do. And he's laughing. Right. And then he says, all we did was we pulled this video of somebody doing the real Gagnum style dance. And then we just mapped, no, not he, I guess like the AI just mapped his body onto it. And, um, and it looks pretty good. It doesn't look perfect, but it looks pretty good. And that has pretty enormous consequences, I would think, right? Oh, definitely. It, like it is, it is in this world, right? Which, which is battling fake news every day. Um, and in a world where people feel like they have to see it to believe it and are not trusting mainstream media sources or, or uh, you know, like this, like I, I think like state sponsored media, like not that CBC is like the state sponsored media, but it's, you know, uh, publicly funded um, and people are more likely to trust up on Facebook. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, I will tweet. I will tweet that out because it's kind of harrowing. Oh, for sure. Well, it's I kind of feel like I'm going to throw up. It's important that we understand the capabilities. And this is just what's, you know, I don't want to get my tinfoil hat out again, but like this isn't military grade stuff that we're not going to hear about for another 20 years. This is just this is what's happening in like the private sector that we get to see. But you were well, you were to be fair. I would I would say that like I think Nvidia would be at the forefront would be at the forefront of this right oh for sure well yeah because they're also they're working on their autonomous uh car technology um so this makes a lot of sense um for them to be working on but then you also see like other deep fake not not this is deep fake but it's very similar in that you can create these really convincing videos very inexpensively (laughs) like the 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 Jordan Peele, uh, Barack Obama video that BuzzFeed did, uh, I guess that was a little right. earlier this year. It seems like a decade ago, man. Um, where, yeah, they deepfake Obama saying stuff that he'd never say. And it's Jordan Peele doing the impersonation. Um, and for people who are savvy and understand that there's technology that can do this. You can tell, but that would be really easy to convince a lot of people who aren't that as savvy. That's just what Barack Obama said. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. So we're, we're beyond the age of just like having to worry about images being Photoshopped where now like, mm. um, like audio and video, are also yeah we we gotta check our sources man gotta check our sources yeah no kidding um i mean this this is a perfect example that would also support stephen johnson's theory right like how play made the modern world is that people develop these processors that are that are able to render these things so quickly um and gaming computers to play games right like the dawn of a gpu is because it was hard to to run intense graphics right Mm. but then you know basically you got finance bros processing a ton of transactions per second 
using GPUs and, and then Bitcoin mining and now and now AI rendering using the same gaming technology. Um, yeah, like that is that is a whimsical thing that turned into or is turning into uh, quite a serious and uh, yeah, I don't know, ser- serious, important paradigm shift, right? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And this, yeah, like you said, this is the most compelling argument he's made so far. But I do want to go back and reiterate, this is a great book. It's a really good read. It's got a, it's just a ton of fascinating tidbits that are, that are woven together. So you can see sort of this, I don't even want to call it a domino effect because oftentimes I don't feel like it's that direct, but there, there are these, these ripples and little bits of inspiration that get passed on through history and that do end up having significant impacts. Um, but the, the to, causal to arrows fair, aren't as straight as the, as the subtitle of the book, I think, right. have you believe. To, to be fair though, when, when you're thinking, when you're thinking historically, um, and what, I don't know if you knew one of my one of my teachable subjects is history. Weird flex, but okay. Um, <laughs> um, the way that we understand cause and consequence tradition in, in traditional history courses can be pretty problematic, right? Like you know, I was referencing World War II, for example, as um, I was talking about Hearts of Iron, right? And if you if you go back and you think about how you learned it in grade ten. Um, when you and I were in high school, it was basically, uh, you know, World War One happened. Germany was poor. Germany wanted to get revenge. Hitler got into power. Hitler ran the Olympics. He was really respected. Then he, you know, then it was like Rhineland. Yeah. Czech Republic. Um, Sudetenland or something. I, I can't remember the exact order. He takes Austria and then England's like, oh, don't take Poland. He takes Poland and then the rest is history. And it's just that causal. Rarely is anything in history a, a, a single cause. Like, is there a single cause and a single yeah. consequence, right? It's it's sort of you need to imagine a web of causes and consequences with, with whichever point that you're examining at the at the center of it. Like if you've ever played the game Kurt Plunk, have you played the game Kerplunk? I definitely have. <laughs> All right. As a deep cut. I, so like, I really like where this analogy is going, just so you know. Right. So think, think about the event that you are examining as a marble in Kerplunk, okay? And the lines are, are essentially, are essentially ca- different causes and different consequences. So you have different causes creating one event, and then you have different consequences stemming out so everything is it's um intersectional right is is the term and um and it creates sort of more of a web than a than a linear cause and consequence so i mean yeah we criticize his we criticize his thesis which is you know whimsy and play um and fun things created the modern world or stemmed these like super important uh, things like the industrial revolution, for example, and that, you know, it's an incredibly hard thesis to, 
to support from from a cause and consequence standpoint right because no it's 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 never one thing like no it's it's not just whimsy no matter what right like no matter how awesome the the color purple is with all these shells and grease it's that that wasn't that one thing that then created this you know uh, royal color of of purple right there's a whole like there's there's economics and yeah exactly and and i know like there's yeah there's there's all kinds of factors is what i'm trying to say and yeah i completely agree with that and but i still i really i really like the spirit of this book um because maybe my other problem with it is because because you're right it's it's never that simple and i really like the web analogy because there are so many different threads pulling at these events in different directions um but maybe it's that part of me thinks that it's an also an obvious thesis maybe because it sort of boils down to people throughout history very much like things that make them feel things and okay. were willing to pay to feel things or willing to sacrifice <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah, I mean, I see that. I, I honestly don't know why I'm giving this book such a hard time because I I really really like it. And I don't think I don't think we're. Are you giving it that hard a time? I I don't know. I like. I think in relation to how much I enjoy it and how much I would recommend this book to other people, I'm definitely <laughs> criticizing it more than is warranted. Maybe. Maybe. It's a good. It's a, I liked it a lot. I mean, I like the couple chapters of it that I have read. Um, I, w- I would highly recommend you keep reading it. I'm going to keep I reading will. it. It's fascinating. Um, we'll leave it until I guess next week, unless you wanted to add anything more on to Wonderland: How Play Made the Modern World by Stephen Johnson. No, Do you I have an. Do I you don't have an epilogue for us. Um. Yeah, I'm going to keep reading it. And I recommend that if you are reading along with us, also keep reading it. If you haven't picked it up yet, definitely pick it up. It's it's a very good book. Don't let this Dumbo <laughs> trying to trying to make sense of the thesis, which is actually just fine and well structured. Don't let don't let my nitpicking dissuade you. Pick it up. It's a great book. All right. There is one more thing we have to talk about. Okay, lay it on me. Which, um, before we get to, I will make a request of our listeners. Because we have listeners, James. There are people signing on to Spotify and listening to this podcast, presumably enjoying this podcast. So to you sitting in your car or at your desk, or walking down the street, listening to this podcast, if you enjoy it, I would make a plea to you to tell your neighbor, or tell your friend, or tell your buddy who's into gaming, but maybe feels like they're a little too old to just get on the hype train for Red Dead Redemption 2, to, I'm just kidding, I mean, I'm sure it's a great game, I haven't played it, to listen to this podcast as well. We would appreciate that. You can also follow us on Twitter, 
at podcast underscore T-O. And that brings me to the final story that I would like to talk about, which is last week, James, you saw this. I, I did, but I'm also, I'm very keen to hear you explain this. This was in the news. It was the Nigerian president at the United Nations stood up in front of reporters and the rest of the world and took it upon himself to declare that no, he had not in fact died and been replaced by a clone. And I read this headline and immediately thought that it was absolutely wild and hilarious. Um, you know, and we we talked about the Matrix and we talked about you know impersonations and and the hyperreal and this and that. And so it loosely kind of fed into what I thought that we were talking about before. So I tweeted this out, and I tweeted that is exactly what a drone would say. Uh, oh, so he's the drone. And then I hashtagged it and I added the article. And I got 116 at least retweets on this. Now, I like, you know, if you, if you run huge Twitter numbers, then 116 retweets may not be big. But we have like 500 followers. <laughs> like 100 retweets is enormous. I should also mention... Not one of these people followed us. They just retweeted the ever-loving crap out of it. Um, And when I clicked to see who had retweeted it, they were all Nigerians. There were there is so the 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 TLDR right is Nigerian president denies being replaced by an imposter or a clone. There is a huge population in Nigeria that that are these conspiracy theorists, and I unwittingly tapped into the market of Nigerian conspiracy theorists out there who believe that their president died and has been replaced by a clone named Jubril. And I'm not making that up. Are, so that's, that's are hilarious. You, are you sure the video of him standing in front of everyone at the UN wasn't also a deep fake? You son of a biscuit. <laughs> No, I guess I'm not. I'm not. But um, but, but Occam's razor. The but uh, yeah, it's, right, exactly. <laughs> so um, it doesn't seem like there's much evidence online for. I mean, there is evidence if you want to find evidence, I guess, of the conspiracy theory, but none that is particularly compelling in the face of those conspiracy theorists being made fun of by every major newspaper outlet around the world. So I thought that was funny. And you can get more hilarious hijinks like that at podcast underscore T-O. Just kidding. That's probably our greatest hit. (laughs) I miss having Twitter sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today. Thank you very much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter. Big shout out to our friend and sound designer and logo designer, Paper Skies. He's a great Toronto artist. And until two weeks from now, later, player. (laughs) 